Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 431. This program is dedicated to the merit of Baruch Binyamin Ben Menucha Lana and Miriam Baschayasar Altais, Yukusil Ben Leir Rochel and Rochel Basliba Farkash, dedicated by Pinchas Todes Ben Miriam and Sarah Bas Rochel Altais. So this week, Living with the Times, we will conclude Parshas Vayechi, the book of Bereshis, the first of the five Chumoshim. So we're going to talk about that. It's also, in two days, will be Asara B'Tevis, one of the four Seimus, one of the four fasts that are specified in the Torah. So let us begin with that, since it's closest to us in time. And I'll as well address many other questions, questions about the new year, questions about some timely events, as well as different follow-ups. An interesting program. And I thank you all for all your kind wishes upon my birthday, which is also Hey Tavis. I should say Hey Tavis, also my birthday. And all your uh, participation and your contributions and donations it's still open, the campaign. We'll still keep it open at thegiftofmeaning.com. If you'd like to participate, all our programs are free. And the way we uh, are able to pay for them is with your generosity. So please join us in participating in that. Giftofmeaning.com. And of course, thank you for all the questions and all the comments that continue to pour in far quicker and faster than I'm able to answer. I don't really have a solution to that one, but we'll continue um, hammering away and trying to answer as many questions as possible. We have a website, chassidahsupply.com, where you can submit any question anonymously, as well as an archive of all the previous programs, as well as many valuable resources about chassidahs in general, including current classes and past classes that are, are included there Samach Vov, Tzadik Dalet, and of course my daily class that I give in Ayin Bays, which you're welcome to participate in every morning, 9.30 Eastern Time, 9.30 in the morning Eastern Time, on Sundays, 10 a.m., and uh, as well as the archives of those programs. Okay, so let's jump right in. Asada B'Tavis. What is the significance of this day? So we know in general the fast days are actually talk about chassidus applied, that Rambam himself applies it in the most personal way. When he begins the laws of fasting, the laws of tainius, he says, the, the, the rationale and the reasoning behind fasting, that it would be cruel and insensitive if negative events, if any catastrophe, catastrophe struck a community or an individual to see it as just mikra niklis, as some type of random event. That would be cruel and insensitive, achzarius. We have to see it as a wake-up call to, to, for introspection and soul-searching and looking at how we can improve our lives. So that re- right away tells you that fast days are not just commemorating events that happened, they're commemorating events that are happening. And we have to look at ourselves in every given situation. This is not about finger-pointing, it's not about blame, it's not about guilt. It's about growth. It's about looking at a situation and not being indifferent and saying, what do I learn from this? How could I become better? Generally speaking, 
the destruction of the temple, which is really the cause of all the fast days, the four fast days, the primarily four fast days, whether it's Asar Betevis, the 17th of Tammuz, Tishabov, Tzem Gedalia, is a result of the destruction of the Beis Amigdash. And we know the cause of that. The second temple primarily, the cause was Sinas Chinam, baseless hatred. So there you have the introspection. What caused the destruction? Baseless hatred. So what's the solution? To eliminate any form of hatred, God forbid, and more importantly, to have baseless love, unconditional love. And this only becomes emphasized when you know what the Yerushalmi says, that any generation that does not rebuild the temple is as if they destroyed the temple. Why are we at fault of what happened then? Because it's a perpetual experience. The Bishamidus was not just then, it was the God's presence in this world. And God's presence, Barchenu Avinu, the blessing of God, His presence among us, Vishakhanti Bisecham, I will dwell among you, is when we are united. When children are fighting with one another, a father, a parent can't be there, in a revealed way at least. So that's a general introspection and a general lesson in life that we have to take out from all the fast days. But what's particular about Asada Batavis? So a very powerful talk that the Rebbe delivered, interestingly when, when he renewed the custom of Divrek Fushin, that on fast days there was a time of custom in shuls that the rabbi would speak words of inspiration, words of Yisaitarus. So the Rebbe renewed it, you know when? In Tav Shalom Ches, after the heart attack, Shminyat Tzedes. So Asada Batavis, the Rebbe spoke in the evening and by day, said a mimer, and he renewed this custom of Divrei Kfushin. And he explained about Asada Batevis. That among all the fast days, what's unique about it? That that's the day that Nebuchadnezzar built a motzer. He encircled, besieged the wall around Jerusalem. It would take months, but he would ultimately breach the wall on the 17th of Tammuz. And three weeks later, the destruction of the burning down of the temple on the 9th of Av. Somach Melech Bavel. He encircled an encampment around, a siege around Jerusalem. So the question the Rebbe asked was, why is this considered to be a fast day? The problems really began once he breached the wall, and definitely once he burned the temple down, God forbid. Why is the besieging such a significant thing? Furthermore, the Avud Raham says something very powerful. He says, on Asura B'tavis, it says, Be'etzem ayemazeh similar to what it says in Yom Kippur, meaning that there's a gzeir shava, commonality, a similarity, that just as Yom Kippur is deich Shabbos, Yom Kippur is more powerful than Shabbos. If Yom Kippur is on Shabbos, we fast. It overrides Shabbos. So too, Asar B'tavis, the would override Shabbos. Tishabov not. Tishabov is pushed off till Sunday if you're Tishabov Shabbos. Same thing, 17th of Tammuz, till Sunday. But Asar B'tavis. Now, why would Asar B'tavis be even more powerful than Tishabov? That's one of the reasons, actually, that this calendar was set up in a way that Asar B'tavis can never be on Shabbos. But if it was able to be, and the Rebbe's answer is both simple and profound and unbelievable lesson in our lives. You don't begin to solve a problem when the problem is already full blown, you nip it in the bud. The destruction of the temple would not have been possible if there was no breach of the wall. And the breach of the wall would not have been possible if there was no besieging of the wall. 
So the Torah in its wisdom is telling us, don't just begin to protect Jerusalem and the, and the Beis Amikdash once you see it being attacked, even if there's a siege around the wall, and it may take time, and you may have bet, hope for the best and, and pray, that already tells you, do something right now. Most problems in life is after the, an infection, God forbid, attacks the body. If you nipped it in the bud, most could be able to be resolved. But it festers and it builds, and once it becomes a monster, very difficult to deal with. What does that mean in Avedis Hashem, serving God? It means there's a concept of Asus Siyog Siyog is a fence, like a wall. Why do we build walls around cities? Because it's a very precious city, an important city. It has a Beis Amigdash in it. So out of honor, you protect it. First of all, from enemies, but also honoring it. And in case there's an attack, the wall is a form of defense. The same thing as Sus Chachamim, our sages, when they saw there was a particular sensitivity or vulnerability around a mitzvah, they built a fence. They said, we will designate a chumrah, a certain restriction, a certain, a certain, a certain severity that one should, we should be careful. It, no, that's not, it's not an aveira from the Torah to not fulfill that particular fence, but it's a fence that will protect you. So don't wait till the issue becomes itself. Many laws, for example. Let's talk laws around Yichud, Hilchus Yichud. The Torah will talk about having sanctity in intimate relations. But nevertheless, because it's, such a, it's prone to all kinds of mistakes, or the Yetzirah, our evil inclination will attack us and try to seduce us in that area. So Chachamim, the sages in their wisdom, created types of, types of defense mechanisms, a defense line, fences, that we shouldn't even get to a place where, God forbid, somebody can fall. Like you see in the, in the military. What you do is you build walls. You build more walls. You build defenses, so if there's going to be an attack, let it attack the fence, and the fence is there to protect. That's what the idea is. So Sarabatevis tells us, don't wait to only protect the things that the Torah says, the 613 mitzvahs, the 248 positive, 365 negative. But even the fences around it, the walls around it, things that are done to protect many things we do, that it may not be a direct positive or negative mitzvah, but it's a mitzvah de Rabbanan, or a mini Yisrael, a custom, some siyog, something to protect us from. When you love someone, you don't just protect the very body you do, you build a home for them. You build many different ways to protect them beyond the letter of the law. And that's what Asar Batevis is telling us, and that's why it has such power. Because if you could stop that initial nipping it in the bud, then the rest will not be effect, affected. That's why it's more powerful than Shabbos. So even though Tisha B'Av technically is a more intense, that's the destruction itself, but it all began when that little defense was breached, which means what? That the wall was besieged. Not the breaching of the wall. We're talking about the breach of allowing that he could even get to that point. Now, if the armies were strong, they wouldn't have allowed him even to surround the city. But that was the beginning of what would be the end not the end forever, but the end of the destruction of that temple, the first temple. So the significance of this day is to look around and how we protect our loved ones and our children is not just to do what's says by the letter of the law, to go even beyond that, to
to do things that may not even be expected that are not necessarily obligated. But that's what you do when you love someone. You add additional measures, protective measures, to make sure they're protected, to make sure that they're pure, to make sure that their integrity is preserved. And of course, the same is with ourselves as well. Things that are precious, you protect in deeper and more powerful ways. Asada Batevas tells us that. Then there's the other side, of course, that when it was surrounded, then it becomes a fast day to remind us that we have to build these walls and rebuild them and strengthen and fortify them. Okay. How is it possible, someone asks, How is it possible that we go from the brightest days of Hanukkah into one of the darkest days of the 10th of Tevis, the beginning stage of the Temple's destruction? If the energy of Hanukkah is about transcendent light and joy and supernatural miracles, how is it possible that we go from the brightest, most miraculous days of Hanukkah into one of the darkest days of the 10th of Tevis, which symbolizes the beginning stage of the destruction of the Beis Amigdash? Wasn't the light and energy of Hanukkah supposed to last all year? How do we lose it so quickly? Very good questions. So, so there are many answers to this, but let's t- touch upon the Chassidus asked the question why we say Tachrun after Shemineser. Tachrun is when we say Ashamnu Bagadnu about our sins. After Shemineser, we should say it in the beginning of the prayer. Once you've elevated through all the stages of prayer, the four general stages of Birchas Hashachar, the Birchas we say in the morning, Psukha de Zimra, Birchas Krishma, Krishma, and Shemineser. So at that point, why do we suddenly remember sin? Slach lanu. So Chassidus answers, Slach lanu, we say in Shemineser, because the higher you go, the more every blemish becomes so more pronounced, so much more pronounced. Like a piece of dust in your finger may not be much, but a piece of dust on your eye. So when you elevate to great higher states, then even the smallest things become significant. So to make sure that when you elevate to a higher place, you want to protect and make sure that there isn't any taking for granted. And you recognize also deeper things. I'm really saying two things at once. One is not to take for granted the fact you're already here. You say, you know what? I'm already overconfident. I can't fall again. So Tachlan tells us no. Slachlan tells us no. Secondly, even things that earlier may not have been noticed, now you notice because of Shemineser. So there are two reasons. The same thing you can apply, two answers to a sort of Batevis. Hanukkah Taka brought light, not just light, but light that came from darkness. And these flames will never be extinguished forever and ever. And even when Hanukkah ends, we still have that power. But still, Mashiach is not here. As long as Mashiach is not here, and it's not Ruach Hatuma Avramina Oretz, that the toxins have been completely removed from this world, don't become overconfident. There's always a possibility of something happening. Secondly, relative to your new higher state, there be subtle things that now you'll recognize that before you didn't recognize. It's like when you shine a stronger light, you suddenly see a piece of dust you wouldn't have seen before. Look, the Jews received the Torah, Matan Torah, the greatest revelation in history. And just 39 days later, they built a golden calf. They were told, do not build false gods. It's always that way. That when you reach higher places, sometimes you let your guard down. Brings us back to the theme of Asada Batevis in general is to keep the guard up. Even the wall around, the, the, not just the very Beis Amigdash itself, even the walls around it have to be protected. 
For example, it says in uh, you shall place, you shall appoint sheftim, judges, and law enforcement, law enforcers, sheftim, police, in all your municipalities, and all your gates is the exact expression. The gates are what? A wall has gates, gatekeepers. And he explains these are the seven gates, the two eyes, the two ears, the two nostrils, and the mouth. Those are the seven gates that allow, allow things into your life or out. You have to have guards there. Make sure with discretion to know what enters and what goes out. Before you hear something, before you look at something, before you taste something, before you smell something. So these are the safeguards that we put in, in place. So even though Hanukkah is over, so don't let your guard down because the world is not perfect yet. And secondly, now maybe you need more higher safeguards for more subtle areas that before you may not have noticed or were not even so significant because you were dealing with bigger issues. So those are two explanations of how to explain that. Another question, how could, related as well, if the month of Tevis contains the word Tev, which means good, Tevis says the word Tev, good, how could something so apparently negative as the sadness of the 10th of Tevis occur in this month? Well, the same answer. When something is good, it only shows you more brightness and more light, and then you can discover a more of a subtle flaw that you need to address. Also, as I said, not to take for granted. That's on a basic level. But then let's go back to even a deeper explanation. The Rambam concludes Hilchus Tainius, which includes, of course, 10th of Tevis, that from the verse in Scharia and other places, that these days will be transformed, Yehovchu, not just eliminated, transformed, it's a jubilation and joy and holidays. Why? Because the real purpose of the fast day was not to be an end in itself. It's meant to repair and to heal, as we said earlier, strengthen yourself, and to reveal that it's an Eisrotzen, that's what these holidays are called. It's an auspicious day, an opportun- a day of opportunity, a propitious day. What's the propitious day? You're, you're remembering negative things. No, but on that day, its real purpose is in order to transform it to something good. So if the, the temple was destroyed because of Sinas Kinnam, the real purpose is to awaken within us and, and, and uh, motivate us to have even more love. And then that day becomes a transform, transform because what sp- stimulated you, what spurred you on, was the negative, the darkness. So you can say, Tevis says there's a letter of, level of good that's revealed good. Then there's a level of good, like the Alter Rebbe says in time, matamim, a good that comes from something that was initially bitter or dark. The yusana'ir min the great light, the powerful light that comes explicitly from darkness. So coming from Hanukkah, which always ends in the beginning of Tevis, the good that comes also from dark, we come to Asar B'Tevis, the ultimate good. The ultimate good. And that also explains how it follows Hanukkah, because Hanukkah transformed darkness, and Asar B'Tevis will ultimately transform And just like the, the side of Asar B'Tevis has the power to override Shabbos, on the positive side also has the power, because it, since it has that ability to 
actually so more powerful than Shabbos because you're dealing with the safeguards, with the nipping it in the bud, with the, the fence, with the wall around. So when it'll be transformed, it would also be the highest day, a day that's even more powerful than Shabbos. That's how deep the transformation will be. So it's our job is to tap into the energy by being careful, by being sensitive, by doing everything we need to do halachically on this day, but knowing that the purpose of remembering all that happened and the strengthening of our fences and the strengthening of our protective measures and all our safeguards and everything we do in life, beyond the letter of the law, beyond just protecting the individual, protecting also the environment, that we have children, for example, you surround them with holy words. You don't just say, I'll protect them, I won't make sure no one attacks them. If someone attacks, I'll defend. No preventive medicine. Giving them an education, a nurturing that empowers them, that validates a child, that when they grow older, they have all the resources and tools at their disposal, the confidence, the security to take on any challenge. They're immunized. Their walls are strong, which then you have that, all that protection. So no one even comes close to the very core, the heart of who they are. Even their walls are strong. Okay. So let's move from that to Parshas Vayechi. Parshas Vayechi. So the central theme of Parshas Vayechi is is uh, the last years of uh, Yaakov's life. Vayechi Yaakov Eretz Mitzrayim Shva Esrishon. He lived there seventeen years, as the Balaturim says. Seventeen Gematria Tev. Good. Talk about Tevis. Tev, good. What kind of good? A good was a Mitzrayim. Because till then, we know Yaakov suffered. As he said earlier to Pare, I lived short and painful years. Short being relative to his parents. Yitzchak, who lived 180 years. Avram, who lived 175 years. Yaakov lived 147 years. But difficult years. From the moment, even the moment of conception, from the moment in, the pre- in, in, in his mother's womb, he was already fighting with uh, his brother, Esau was fighting with him. And then, of course, through their lifetime, dealing with Esau, then dealing with Lovan, and then dealing with the selling of Yosef. And it's only the last 17 years of his life, when he came down to Mitzrayim, that he lived his best years. So that's a general theme. That's why it says, Yaakov. Yaakov lived, he really lived there. But then the story continues. Yaakov prepares for the end of his life in this world. And he summons Yosef and then summons his children. Yosef's children, he blesses them, then blesses his own sons, all the Shvatim. And the rest of the story is about Yaakov's passing and then taking Yaakov to Yisrael and then the passing of all the Shvatim till the end of the chapter where Yosef passes away and they put him in, a, in an Arden, the Ark in Mitzrayim Gives the, takes, has the Shvatim take an oath that when they would leave this God-forsaken place, they would take his atzomis, his bones, with them, with them. So that's the central story. So here's the question. It's one story, one question at a time. Firstly, the famous question about Vayechi Yaakov. How could you call the name of a chapter Vayechi? Yaakov lived. The whole story is about his passing. If you want a story about Yaakov Vayechi, was all the chapters before. He lived in Pashas, he starts in Teldus, and Vayetze, Vayishlach, Vayeshev, Mikez, Vayigash. There are many chapters in Yaakov. You start reading Vayichi Yaakov, you see right away, you're talking about his last 17 years. So there's the famous answer from the Rebbe's answer. 
similar to the question of Chaya Soda, by Yushnei Chaya Soda, also Chaya Soda, the life of Soda, and then you read on, talks about her passing, that she lived 127 years. You want to talk about her life was the previous chapters. And the answer is, when do you see a person's real life? Is after they're not here physically, because you see their influence. When someone's here and they have impact, that's obvious. But you see how they leave a legacy. They, 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 their spirit continues on in their children and their families. And that thousands of years later we talk about them. Then you know, vayichi, true vayichi. So that's a lesson in general, what is real life? Biological life or spiritual life? Biological life lasts as long as biological life lasts. But spiritual life never ends. Especially for a tzaddik, as we'll discuss shortly. But then comes another question that someone asked. Here's the question. Why would Yaakov say the best years of his life were the 17 years he spent in Mitzrayim? Mitzrayim is a country of savages and filled with idolatry and immorality, called Erva Sa'aretz, the decadence of the land. Why would Yaakov enjoy being there? And if he liked it so much, why would he make his children swear and know that when he passes away, to immediately remove his body from the unholy land of Mitzrayim and bury him in the holy land of Eretz Yisrael? What does Chassidus teach that Yaakov is really saying here, and what is the lesson for us? So there's actually, there's actually, a story that the Friedrich Rebbe tells and the Rebbe repeats. And here is the story. The Tzemach Tzedek was a child and he learned this Pasuk Vayichi Yaakov Be'eretz Mitzrayim Shva'as Rishona Put in Hayyim Yim the Rebbe cites it briefly in Hayyim Yim the 18th of Tevis which corresponds to Parsha Vayichi. Okay. So his, t- his teacher the Tzemach Tzedek's teacher interpreted according to the Bala Turim his best years he lived in Egypt. So when the Tzemach Tzedek came home from Cheder, he asked his grandfather, the Alter Rebbe, how are you talking? How is it possible that Yaakov, of all the others, the most special one, his best years, his 17 best years, should be in Erev Asa'aretz, in decadent land. And the Alter Rebbe said to him, like this, it says in the verse, that when Yosef let Yaakov know that he's alive and, it's, and then invited him to come to Mitzrayim, so it says he first sent Yehuda to Yosef to pave the way, Geshna, toward Geshna, where they would live. And the Medr says, and Rashi brings, cites it, this is the Alter Rebbe answering the Tzemach Tzedek. He sent him to establish a base medrash, a house of study, Teirah. That there should be Teirah, and that the Shvatim should be immersed in studying Teirah. And that's paving the path, Geishna, as you learn Teirah, you get closer to God. That also in Egypt should be gelept, real living. What's real living? Chayenu v'erechemenu, living according with Teirah. When you learn Teirah, you get closer to God, and v'yechi, even in Mitzrayim. So what do you see from this? That the point is, not that it is Mitzrayim that made him the best Years and even in Mitzrayim, even in the darkest place, to bring Teda, that brings out a deeper good, 
essentially the theme of Hanukkah and the theme of Asar B'tevis, the light from darkness, the light even in darkness. So that's another explanation why Vayechi Yaakov, because the real living was Dafka in that place. Obviously the goal is ultimately to go back to Yisrael, but there's something in the, in the work of Golos, Golos Mitzrayim, the whole reason why the Jews are in Mitzrayim in the first place was the transformation of this darkest of worlds, the lowest levels, and that would lead them to the highest levels. So that answers the question regarding um, Yaakov, best years. Okay. Just, Chashgach Pratis just saw a note from the Rebbe from the year Tavshin Tezvav, Yud Beis Tevis, this time period, this week. It's, a letter, it's an answer to Rabbi Beryl Baumgarten, famous chassid, later become the, the, the first shliach of Ar- in Argentina. So he asked the Rebbe whether he should go to a bar mitzvah of a son of one of his friends. And the Rebbe wrote, It's a very appropriate thing to do. And the, Re- and the Rebbe says, and, be- and being that now is Pashas Vayechi, that today is Pashas Vayechi, You should talk about what it says in Hayyim Yem that also in Eretz Mitzrayim was Vayechi Yaakov. This Hayyim Yem, we just talked about the story with the Tzemach Tzedek and the Alter Rebbe. And the Rebbe says the following words. There's a relevance to story to America because Egypt and America are, have something in common. Both of them have a decadent side and a beautiful side. By and by Lahiris Lefonov, like he said, he sent Yehuda before him to pave the way, to build the yeshiva, Teda, place of Teda, to get closer to God. When you do that, you can you can refine, you can work through, saturate the Metavara, the beautiful land. That it should be even greater than Eretz Yisrael. Because Eretz Yisrael is Meitavar, it's only Meitavar. There's no negative side. This answer. So we see here a, a direct applied last lesson to us all in any given situation. And when you do that, it becomes even greater than Eretz Yisrael. Okay, next question. So then, as I mentioned, what happens next is Yaakov gives the blessings to the Shvatim. So a few questions that came in. When Yaakov blessed Shimon and Levi, he referred to what they did in Shechem, the negative thing, in a negative way. So this person writes, why did Yaakov keep a grudge against Shimon and Levi, quote-unquote grudge, for the massacre of Shechem? Shechem deserved what they got. They violated an innocent girl, Dina, and what Shimon and Levi did was justice. Halavai, more vigilantes like Shimon and Levi should seek justice and eradicate criminals from the world. Why did Yaakov have such a problem with it? In Samach Tzedek, in Derech Mitzvah brings in a Maimer, Segalachas Mitzvah, that there's a Midas HaChesed, which is kindness, Midas HaRachim, compassion, there's a Midas HaGvura, discipline. And he says, when it comes to discipline, even when it's a discipline of Gdusha, of holiness, meaning it's appropriate discipline, you have to take extra care. Because you have to make sure it doesn't feed into your personality 
that maybe has a tinge, a tinge of pleasure. You know, some people have a little, sometimes I don't call it a cruel nature, but they have something gvura. And gvura have to be extremely careful. And he gives the example there. That you can have people who have a teva, they just they have a cruelty in them. And they're always first online when it comes to punishing someone. Even if the person deserves punishment, why are you first online? Why aren't you first online when it comes to rewarding someone? What Yaakov was teaching was Shimon Alevi could find justification. But it, wasn't, it was only them that did it. The other Shvatim didn't do it. Because they had a more of an aggressive nature, more Gvura. We know Shimon and Levi both come from Gvura. Reuven was Chesed, Shimon is Gvura. Levi also Gvura. So Gvura is a Gvura is a mid of Gdusha. Agdula va Gvura. The Ebishta is great, Gibber, powerful. But Gvura also has the potential of a unique Sachitzenim where the negative energies can sometimes wean energy from there. Clean energy from there. So the Hashem is saying, you have to be careful. And Yaakov understood that. So in the blessing, he made it basically channel and harness your aggression toward positive things. Because negative things can come out of it. And negative things did come out of it. That's the essential point and essential theme. Like everything in Teda, Teda is Chesed. It's always to teach chesed. And even with this gvur, it's gvur sheba chesed. And the Rebbe's baracha, tov shenun beiz, Rosh Hashanah, would be the last baracha we heard from the Rebbe. Rosh Hashanah, the Rebbe would always give a blessing. So he spoke about, even though Rosh Hashanah is yem adin, but the whole point is, v'shoftu eida, v'yitzilu eida. Judge the community, but v'yitzilu, preserve them, save them, protect them. That's the whole point. It's not gvur as an end in itself. Gvuris mumutaki, sweeten the gvuris. Transform gvura into chesed. Transform the dark into the light. So it's not about a grudge, it's about this extra sensitivity necessary when gvura is employed. Expression goes, I think I may have heard it from the Rebbe, but definitely from Chesidim, that a person goes overboard with chesed, a little extra chesed. It's also not always great because you can spoil someone. But it's not machnish So you did a little more kindness to someone than they, they may have deserved. But if a person does a little extra gvura, they can do real damage. And we see that today, especially today. That doesn't mean there's no room for discipline, but put it into the right context. Always as an extension and as addendum and a support to love and kindness. Okay, next question. When Jacob is blessing his sons before he passed away, he said, great kings will come from Judah, Yehuda. Great judges will come from Don. Great seamen, or you could say uh, um, seafarers from Zvulun, etc. We know today that many Jews are in the performing arts as musicians, actors, and comedians. Do we know which tribe performers come from based on Jacob's blessings? An interesting question. An interesting question. So first of all, let's distinguish between kings, judges, and uh, seafarers. They all have an Aved in Gedusha. Even the seafarers of Zvulun were partners with Yisachar, as we know. Smach Zvulun b'tseisecha. Yisachar b'yelecha. Yisachar in the tents of Teira, Zvulun being the merchants at sea. 
So there's a partnership, a tater partnership. Same thing with the judges, same thing with malachim. So not to suggest that performing artists, musicians or actors and others don't, cannot use it for Gdusha. We know that in the Tanya he brings, even comedy, humor. As I say comedy, but a milsa de can be used to Gdusha. But it's not per se necessarily a tater work. So the question would be whether the Shvatim, the personality of the Shvatim also includes that. At the same time, you could say that there must be something in each shaver that did have certain proclivities or predispositions that would probably perform, create to perform. Like Levi, Levim were composers, musicians. But I've never seen it actually traced that way. So it's an interesting subject. I'm bringing it up. If anybody has any comments or thoughts, or maybe there's a medrash, or maybe there is something about it I haven't seen, please share it, and I will, uh, I will definitely share it with the public. Thank you for that question. But the thing that should be remembered is that the Shvatim Shifte Yudke are the 12 paths. And Ikol Echad Yala, when the Jews went through Kriyas Yamsuf. So it says the sea part of 12 different paths. Because every Shevet has its type of Aveda. That's why every Nasi, every leader of a tribe brought his Karbonis, even though they're the same offerings for dedicating the temple. But it was with his intentions, with his unique personality. We know that the Golan, the flags of the Shvatim represented their personality. I once did a series of classes on the the golem, on the on the flags and the symbols of that, the colors, as well as their encampment, where they where they encamped on their journeys through the wilderness, going from Egypt to the Holy Land, the Promised Land. So the, each shaver does have its personality. So I'm, I'm sure a study could be made, and you could find certain personality types. But remember, there's also uh, there was a mix between sh- tribes that married with each other, and especially today when we don't know, in most cases, which tribe someone came from, even though we may know many come from Yehuda, or from Binyamin, or part of Menashe, um, part of Ephraim, rather. And, uh, and we know, of course, the Levim, the Kehanim and Levim. But it's an interesting thing. When Mashiach comes, we know one of the things he'll do is clarify the Yichus, the lineage and maybe that will also clarify the identity and the personality of the different individuals based on the tribes that they associate with. Okay. What does it mean, Yaakov Avinu Mes? Yaakov Avinu did not die. So the Gemara and Tainus tells us, because we see, it does not say the word Misa by Yaakov, Ayomos, like it says by others. So the Gemara says Loimes. Does it mean his physical body never died and he's just in a very deep sleep or does it mean his body died but his spirit is still alive through us if we continue in his ways? So the Gemara asked the question. They, they eulogized him. They embalmed him. They buried him. So what does that mean he didn't die? So the Gemara answers... Mazare Bechaim, just as his children are alive, so too is he alive. Now, there are many explanations of what that means. But the Rebbe explains clearly, in one place, there's a famous sikha on this. That means literally that even in his body, because if not, what would be the question? Why doesn't it say Vayomos? All the tzaddikim, Avram and Yitzhak, also their children live on, and therefore they live on through them. That there's something about Yaakov being teferis, that permeates also his body. 
Now, that doesn't mean Yaakov is physically walking around. It means that our bodies, in a sense, manifest Yaakov's body. Well, the different ways you explain that sikh and the different bedrashim and different commentaries. But that there's an element of nitzchis, absolutely. So when we live up to the standards and the legacy and the qualities and virtues and values, we are essentially perpetuating Yaakov. That's the bottom line message for all of us. Now comes the question the other way around. Why does the Torah go into such great detail about Yosef asking his servants to embalm Yaakov when it is against halacha to do embalming? It is nivel hames, so defiling the, the, the dead, the corpse. Why would Yosef humiliate and defile his father's holy body in such a manner like they would do for Egyptian Avedazara idolatry? So you can imagine this question is asked by commentaries, by the Medrash, some explain on a very basic level that when you really read it, it doesn't say the imamish embalmed him. It says that the 40 days of embalming passed. So some interpret that meaning, that it wasn't actually embalming. It was more going through the motions because that's what the Egyptians did. They didn't want to offend the Egyptians. When you look at Medrash, there's also different opinions. Whose idea was it? Was it Yaakov said to do it, the embalming, or Yosef? Yaakov meaning before he passed away. And what's the reason? So it says clearly in the the commentaries, because Yosef knew that Yaakov was a tzaddik. And a tzaddik, his body would not decompose. It decomposes only due to toxins and due to tumor. But Yaakov didn't have that. If the Egyptians would see that, they would turn him into a deity. So both Yaakov and Yosef were concerned with that. So he went through motions of embalming, but not the way the Egyptians embalmed. There are many different verses that show clearly they didn't do it the regular way, which would be the ways that were defiling, would be defiling. They did it in certain ways. Make sure the Egyptians did not think that he's a deity, because if they wouldn't have done anything, they would have seen. That's the general answer given for it. Some say it was before Martin Taylor, and many things before Martin Taylor that was prohibited later was not prohibited before. But we try to stay away from that because... It says, the Ovis performed all the Teda even before it was given. And especially the spirit of it. And bombing is the spirit of doing it. In Teda, you bury immediately as soon as you can. That's the Gdusha, preserving the Gdusha and the respect and dignity of the Elofa Atov Elofa Toshuf. So that's part of the explanation for it. We also know by Yasef himself, it says, Atzomus Yasef. There's different explanations, the Gemara and Seita. So there's a famous sikha from the Rebbe, Vayichi Tov Shemem Zayin, where he talks about this as well, about the embalming with Achsam Sefer. If you want to look up more details, go there, Vayichi Tov Shemem Zayin, in the footnotes. Okay. So we covered Sarah Batevis, we covered some of Vayichi. Now today was New Year's, the secular New Year, January 1st. So here's someone asked the question. Do we wish Happy New Year? And a follow-up question. There's a note going around social media telling a story that on the second of New Year, New Year's Day, Rabbi Levi Yitzchak Abaditchev would wish people Ksivach Simateva. Well, I, I don't know if those were the words he used, but he used you know, whatever words of Happy New Year, because that Ksivach Simateva is clearly exclusively for Rosh Hashanah, the first of Tishrei. So let me just clarify that. And when asked why he would acknowledge a secular holiday, he replied that when Hashem sees 
how the Gentiles celebrate their new year with drunken revelry and Avedis, in contrast to how we celebrate in Rosh Hashanah with davening, learning, and mitzvahs, Hashem is happy and reveals new blessings to the community. Can Rabbi Jacobson, Rabbi Jacobson mention this on his Sunday show and mention if there's a written source for this story? I've seen versions of this, not necessarily in the name of Rabbi Yitzchik, but Ditchev. I don't know how reliable it is. Also, it seems very uh, negative. And, um, and to, to say something, especially in those times, could have even be dangerous. And even today, I wouldn't use such an uh, explanation. What we do know, and the Rebbe said this to people, said to Rabbi Nisim Mendel, one of his secretaries, said to one of the Rabbi Hecht, on New Year, he says Happy New Year, and when they looked to the Rebbe, says, you know, the Rebbe said, the Yisrael Baditchev would wish people, I guess the non-Jews, Happy New Year, and based on a Pesach and Tehillim. Tehillim pays Zion Vov, 87.6, where it says, Hashem Yisper B'chsev Amim, that Hashem counts, Hashem measures, B'chsev Amim with the calendar of, or the way, the writings of the nations. So as long as you don't connect it to anything that is pagan or idolatrous, remember January 1st is considered also the calendar, beginning of the fiscal year, many other factors. So therefore there is room for saying it. Is it Rosh Hashanah? Obviously it's not Rosh Hashanah um, that we celebrate on Tishrei. But that element that has, and therefore may it be, good wishes for a year, a healthy year, and all positive things in that context. But the story that you wrote, it, I, I, as again, I saw it around. I never really researched what the source is. And there's indeed a source, or it's a chsiz shevart, or... But Levitzah Baditchev, we know this for sure, the Hashem Yisper B'chsevam. Okay. Next question. Something connected to events that re- happened recently. Should we celebrate when an evil person dies? Should we celebrate, especially when there's a leader who is not good to the Jewish people? Some leaders who were members of the Hitler Youth Nazis, Yemach Shemam. And then when they became a religious leader, wrote things that were protecting molesters, pedophiles, and so on. Should we celebrate the death of such a person. Because on the other hand, maybe we're not allowed to. Because when the angel sang Shira, when the Mitzrayim, when the Egyptians were drowning, and remember the Egyptians were quite cruel. They had, what they had put the Jews through, I mean, was through the slavery, through genocide. So Hashem was upset at the angels and said, how dare you sing and dance while my creations are being destroyed. My handiwork is drowning in the sea and you're singing Shira. So generally, that's exactly the answer. Even benefele vech al tismach. There's other ways we celebrate positive things, good things. Let others, we don't have to be involved in stepping on somebody. On the contrary, it happened. If that person was indeed an evil, bad person, and that also has to be established. So of course, there's a certain element of relief, if you wish, especially if we were in danger of that person. In this case, I'm not sure the danger part. But even if so, is that our role is to go like we see from the Malachim? With Hashem didn't know the Egyptians were bad people. So celebrate. Celebrate the Jews' victory. Celebrate Pesach. Celebrate other positive things. Increase in goodness. 
But our job, our, our mission is not to be stepping and celebrating after the, the vanquishing of another. Now that doesn't mean we know when Haman was killed, of course, it became Simchas Purim. But Simchas Purim is not just about Haman being destroyed, it's about Mordechai victorious, the Jewish people victorious. We celebrate through what? Through Teireh, through mitzvahs, through Amishta, through a celebration, through Avos Yisrael and Achdus Yisrael, Mishleach Manas Yishlerehehu, Matanus Lavyenim. So you see the celebration. Yes, we, we, we bang and we make sounds when, when Haman's name is mentioned. We obliterate Zecher HaMolek. Moche Timche Zecher HaMolek. But the focus is not on the erasing, the focus is on the positive. And yes, in every possible way, to eliminate not just the individual, but what he represented. HaMolek represents doubt, kaltkeit, coldness, Everything that's antithetical to God. When he says in Tanya chapter 10 that a tzadik gomer despises anything that's evil, he says in context, is because his love for God is so complete. So anything that's just a little not godly, definitely a lot not, anything antithetical to holiness, he's going to despise. But it's not because he's an angry person or because he's a hateful person, because his love is so deep. We talked before about the love. When you love your children, you love someone really deeply. So of course you're going to build every safeguard, every wall, every way to protect. And you'll be fierce and ferocious to protect them against anything negative. When you say, They avenge us like a, like a serpent. Some people misunderstand. It's not because he's an avenging person or because he has anger and vengeance. It's because his love for the positive is so powerful. So he sees anything that goes against it against love, against helping people, against God, for him is a, is a serious thing. He's not complacent about it. That's the point. The focus should be on the passion toward the good. That includes, obviously, something that's negative, that's been eliminated, fine. You got rid of the weeds, but the key is to focus on building the flowers, nurturing the flowers to blossom. Okay. Next question. Homeopathy as a remedy. Shalom, Rabbi. You read in episode 409. Okay, that's quite a while back. Yeah, what did I read? My email on homeopathy for multiple personality disorders due to child's sexual abuse. At the end of that, of that lecture. That's when I read it, okay. I came across a podcast program about a certain young woman's death after developing eating disorder and mutilating herself, etc. This is a situation that, again, homeopathy has remedies of proven cures. Apparently, it's a huge problem in our community. May Hashem help us. By listening to the symptoms of individuals, it may, may be that arsenic and homeopathic, homeopathic doses would have been her remedy. There are some rabbis who are well aware of homeopathy and study it for a time, but it takes many hours to become familiar with its applications. I'm at loss on how to inform people about the help available from reputable homeopaths. Thank you for any ideas. So like anything when it comes to medical situations, especially serious ones, you need to have extremely competent people, responsible people, because there are too many quacks out there and there are too many people who are just, just being reckless, to be honest. So the Torah says, The Torah gives permission for a doctor to heal. Of course, again, begin the debate, what defines a doctor? So I go 
humbly and simply the way, modestly the way the Rebbe looked at it. A doctor are people who have credentials. Other doctors accept them. Just like it is with other things. Other experts. Can't just be a self-professed, a self-appointed uh, uh, self, uh, um, doc- uh, doctor. And there are many doctors that use alternative methods, including homeopathy. So this isn't about, is it good or not good? It depends on context and among other me- different interventions. And sometimes it doesn't need medication. Sometimes it needs therapy. Sometimes other interventions. So like anything, life is critical. It's the most precious thing. And the Hashem gave us tools and individuals and permission to go to them to help heal. And you don't leave any stone unturned when it comes to a person who's in any difficult situation. So I think if we take that attitude and introduce it that way, it's far easier to have people accept. There are always going to be people who are going to resist anything different. Some people don't go to even a natural, even to a mainstream doctor, let alone other types. So they have to be educated that that's what the Torah says to do when, you, when there's a need. But as far as the range, the spectrum of what to use, what methods, interventions, what medications or not, you have to be very careful. You mentioned arsenic. Arsenic, if you look it up, it can be, it's quite toxic. It can be lethal even. So I understand when it's done in a homeopathic way, but under the right control and the right... Now we know also medications, the pharmaceutical ones that are approved by the FDA, can also be lethal. That's why so much care and sensitivity has to be taken. My role here is I'm not a doctor, so I'm not going to prescribe. It's, we need to be responsible. The Torah approach, the Hasidic approach, Hasidic applied approach is responsibility. Yes, to make sure that every avenue is pursued because when a person is in danger, especially if they're hurting themselves or other things that have happened, you want to make sure to give them the best there is out there. I'm not afraid. But it should be done on a reputable way, with the right authorities, with the right, get more than one opinion, make sure there's always risks, we know that, but you want to minimize that and maximize the results. And Hashem should bless that we should all have only healthy lives in a way of which is not like the machla b'mitzrayim, talking about Egypt, in a way that preventive medicine preempts it and even if it happens, it's completely eliminated as if it never happened. That's the blessing and the prayer. Okay. So here, how can we ensure that good deeds being performed should be done so with consideration for others? So this is a little sensitive question, but I felt it's appropriate to read, so let me read it. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, I live on President Street. They park all the mitzvah tanks on my block for all eight days of Hanukkah. It's an inconvenience for me not to be able to park in front of my home for eight days, but I tolerate it because of the greater good of Mitzvahim. I can be slightly inconvenienced and park a few blocks away. Okay, good. But what I can't tolerate is all the trash dumped on the streets around and between the mitzvah tanks, debris from posters, boxes of menorahs and candles and food garbage. I know the Bochum work hard doing the Mitzvahim and want to eat dinner on the tanks when they return home, but they have to dispose of the trash in the proper way. I like to wake up in the morning and smell the coffee and not smell and see garbage. It's not my intention to say bad on anyone. I know they are not doing it on purpose and it's just carelessness. But, what my, but I want my letter to just to serve as a reminder that we need to behave properly and make a Kiddush Hashem by keeping to the highest standards. Thank you. 
So I debated actually whether I should read the question. First of all, it has details that maybe are not appropriate to read. Now, this could have been read in much more vague terms, but I decided to read it because it's something that we all have to put our heads together. We can do great things, but they have to be done in a sensitive way. Because part of Yiddishkeit is Tara Mevila Degdusha. Cleanliness brings to holiness. And when something like Mifsoyim and other things are done, but there's also this other side aspect to it, not taking away from the great Mifsoyim, but it's something that needs to be looked at. And this is not just in this area, there are many areas. Since we have a platform here, Chesida supplied, and we want to live up to the Rebbe's highest standards, look at the Rebbe's expectation of cleanliness. He would go into 770, saw something on the floor. He himself would bend down and pick it up. Piece of garbage, he would pick it up, put it up on the side, or Seamus or something like that. I remember once when the Rebbe went all the way to his place. He was davening for the Omid, I believe. And he saw behind the bimah some bag, laundry, I don't know what it was. You should see how visibly upset the Rebbe was. And he called over the secretary, and he was saying that And then the Rebbe said these words, you could hear it. The Rebbe said, Amol the Shamish, who would clean up in the base of like, With his beard he would sweep the ground. The Rebbe said, The Rebbe repeated, Okay, that's an ashul, that goes, that's for sure the case. But even the streets of our community, in every community, and especially when you're doing mitzvahs, how important it is to also have that part of it. And that's part of education. Just like we're teaching ourselves and our students and our men and women and children that they should do everything to spread Yiddishkeit, also has to be done with a beautiful way. Now you could say this is Kranite, you know, it's not out there. It doesn't matter. Whatever is at home, it's in the street, it's people and so on. I appreciate what you said about the parking. That's true. Sometimes we have to inconvenience ourselves and it's not such a big thing. It's part of the mitzvah. But there's no justification to not be responsible. Just like if you have a kiddush for a bar mitzvah or a kiddush for a birth of a child or whatever kiddush it is, beautiful kiddush, but you want to make sure it's cleaned up afterwards. Why we have to emphasize that? Well, we do, so we do, and that's what we're doing now. And I hope it's all taken in the right spirit. It's not meant to criticize any individual. There's no names here. We're all, in a way, part of this and all the way, some way, responsible to bring it to everyone's attention. Okay. The next uh, question, I just smile because this seems to not go away. A few weeks ago, someone wrote about an individual who seems to be sending in irreverent questions, provocative ones, and so on. So there's been gone this ongoing back and forth so here's yet another slew. So this is from the person who first brought it up. I, I think I have two versions here. I'm not sure if it's the same person, two people. I'll, I'll read them both. Rabbi Jacobson, I'm the one who drew attention to the person making irreverent comments. Just for the record, I'm not a rabbi looking for a debate, but just a young at heart bubby grandmother with old-fashioned values. I felt sad to hear the reply, specifically that he feels that his challenges in life justify his jaded attitude. I am glad that I brought up the subject and I'm still of the opinion that everything Hashem does, if good, whether or not it looks like that way to us, is good, whether or not it looks that way to us. Sometimes little children throw tantrums and tell their parents they aren't being fair. But when they grow up, they understand things differently. How much more so is that the case in our relationship with our Heavenly Father, 
We, can, we can't possibly expect to understand his ways. However grown up we may be, we remain mere mortals. Personally, I found much strength in knowing that Hashem doesn't demand more than a person can cope with. And also that Hashem reproves the one he loves. When life is rough, it's a divine vote of confidence in our ability to overcome. So I feel sad for this person who is still suffering after decades. I highly commend him for his extensive Torah study and hope that he will come to find solace in the Torah and see the beauty in the world. I sincerely wish him well, and I'm sure that carrying a grudge against Hashem and whoever else he feels has wronged him is not a healthy thing to do. May he see openly revealed good, and may we all merit the ultimate good of Mashiach now, when we will finally understand why we had to go through what we did, and Eitcha Hashem can have to be, we will thank Hashem for having afflicted us. Thank you, Rabbi Jacobson, for everything you do, and may, may we all have only good news to share. So another note came in, it seems like the same person, so I'll just read it as well. I'm the one who first com- commented on the irreverent questions. Thank you for how you are handling this. I feel that the man concerned is crying out for attention and desperate for help, though he seems to have toned down his criticism a little. I wish I could do something to help, but I don't think I'm the one to reach out to him, being a woman. He seems to be living in such a dark world and claims that re- that's reality and that I'm the one living in a bubble. I don't want to discuss my life, but I'll just say that I have been through quite a bit and still have challenges, but try not to get bogged down by them. I feel a certain responsibility for having stirred things up. I truly hope that having brought this things out in the open will bring him a personal, bring him a personal geula. If you are able to offer him help or can think of another person who could, I would be most grateful. Thank you again. Okay. Enough said about that. I don't need to comment. I appreciate all the words said here. So now I have a whole bunch of follow-ups. And I'm still trying to catch up. So let me do a few. This is from a few... Since we're in Parsha Vayechi and the conclusion of the story of Yaakov and the narrative of Yaakov and the Torah, I thought we could still talk about things from the previous Parshas. So I'll, talk, I'll deal with one or two. Let's see how far we can go. So in Parsha Miketz, two Parshas back, can Yosef's interpretation of, Far- of Pari's dream of the seven fat and seven skinny cows also be a life lesson for us about the importance of saving money and resources in case we need them in the future? The answer is absolutely yes. I remember giving a talk. It was for a, a quite a large secular audience, actually. And I shared the story of... Uh, Joseph's interpretation. And here's a very fascinating point that many don't even take notice of. So, you know, Yosef interprets Pari's double dreams, one about the fat cows and the skinny cows, the skinny cows swallowing up the fat cows, the same thing with the bushels of wheat, of grain. And the reeds. And then what happens is he tells Pare that this means there'll be seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine, extreme famine. So it resonates with Pare. They all declare Yosef such an unbelievable interpreter of dreams. And then they ask him what to do and Yosef gives the advice. So in the years of plenty, let's stock up and have enough surplus for the years of famine. They say, brilliant, brilliant Jew. 
and he appoints him viceroy, second in command, and he indeed does exactly that and turns Egypt into a superpower. So the question is, what's so brilliant about it? You know that there's seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. The famine is coming, so of course you're going to save up. The answer is execution. We all take for granted. When things are going well, most of us don't necessarily prepare. We say, may not happen, maybe it's a doubt, I'll, know what to, I'll deal with it then. That's really one of the reasons that, in, that financial advisors always speak about forced savings. Put away every month automatically. Why? I'll do it willingly. Every month I'll put away. And if I miss one month, I'll do next month too. It doesn't work. What Yosef's genius was that he could implement it. He had the discipline that even when things are going extremely well, the discipline to put aside, there'll be enough for those seven years of famine. And that changed the whole course of history. So it's a lesson in life in general that we take for granted our blessings. And then when things start going not so well, we don't have never really, we haven't prepared properly. So the answer is absolutely yes, and it's a very uh, powerful lesson in life in general. Week before that was Parsha Vayeshev, right? The end of the the beginning interpretation of the dreams began with Yeshev interpreting the dreams of the baker and of the butler or the the chief baker and the chief, um, they called him, was the, the chief... Uh, what's the expression used for Sar HaMashkim chief cup bearer so someone writes like this in Shul our rabbi mentioned that Yosef was punished for asking the, the chief cup bearer to put in a good word for him with Fadi to get him out of jail instead of only asking Hashem for help it made me think what did Yosef do wrong why was Yosef punished for asking the chief cupbearer to intervene on his behalf? A few weeks earlier, we learned that when Yaakov was running from Yosef, he prayed, prepared for war, and brought presents and bought presents to appease Yosef. And we are taught that the lesson is we can't rely on miracles, and we have to do whatever we can in the natural way, and then pray to Hashem that we succeed. So, what did Yosef do wrong? He did the natural thing to ask someone who was going to meet with Fari to help him. An excellent question. It's actually a question asked in Chassidus. There's a member from the Tzemach Tzedek, V'loi Zohar, Sarah Mashkim is Yesef, the last verse in Vayeshev, that he didn't remember him. And Rashi says that he was punished, Yesef, to remain longer in prison because he also relied on the Kabir, not just an Hashem. The Mereb Marash has a maimer the same thing in that week, Tafresh Lamad Gimel. Friedrich Rebbe has a maimer in Tafresh Peiches. I think there's a maimer also from the Rebbe Rashab in Tafresh Nunches, if I'm correct. There are more on this. I'm sure the Rebbe has a maimer on it as well. And they bring from from Medrash Yidei Meisha. Friedrich Rebbe doesn't say the name of the commentary who says that he didn't rely on Hashem, but they say it's a shibush. You can't say that because it says clearly he relied on Hashem, but he also relied on the cupbearer to bring it to Pari's attention. So what did he do wrong? So the Rabbeinu Bechaya, they quote, says, there's no question that Yesu, God forbid to think Yesu didn't rely on Hashem, but he looked for a way how, how the reasons, how would Hashem, what methods Hashem would use 
And he thought maybe it's through this uh, cupbearer that Hashem would be using him. What's wrong with that? A tzaddik doesn't have to think about the way. Just rely that God will do it. God will find the way. And the fact that he gave some credence to that Hashem is going to do it this way was somewhat of a, on his level, not appropriate. But the Tzamech Tzaddik and the Rabbeim ask further, one second, so then why Yaakov did it? Like you just asked, Yaakov did that. He relied also on other means. So why is Yaakov different than Yosef? Why is Yosef, why Yaakov wasn't punished? Because Hashem works through different people. And the Maimer goes on to explain. And he brings also from the Cheves Alavavis, Shara Betochen, who also says that not, Betochen means not just trusting God, but also trusting in the ways God works. So there's, there's, there is room for looking for different ways that God will work. That's why you also ask others for help. Not instead of God, because that's the way God is answering you. So he answers, because Yosef was in a different level. Yaakov was Tiferes of Atzilus. In Atzilus, you can have that element of having also messengers. And you never know what messenger will be the way Hashem answers. Yosef, being someone who was thrown into Mitzrayim, and he maintained the integrity, even at such a low level, because he was connected to the level of Atzmusein Sof, Skira Achas of the world of Ak, the different terms that are used, there it's a higher standard. And even thinking of the channel, of how, to, of how God will respond was also, on his level, not appropriate. That's why he was punished. So it's all about, again, relative to the level. Remember we spoke earlier about Slach Lonu, that even in Shemineser, because when you're a higher level, every little thing matters. And even that was, was, was more than should be for Yesif, as he explains in these Maimonim that I just quoted. Okay, with that, I believe we can conclude this program, though there's more and more and more, always more, but that's how it is. So let us conclude. This has been My Life Chassidus Applied, episode 431. We're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. Every Shana of a blessed Chedesh Tevis, with the word Tev, Tev Begoli, Beteva Nidava Nigla, only reveal good, and even the darkness that Hanukkah teaches and Sada Batevis should only lead to even a greater and deeper good, to the good, till the good of the Gula Amitiz Vashlema, Kod of Mamish, through your Futsamanasachutza. Everyone be well and have a very good and healthy week. Thank you. This program is brought to you by My Life, Hasidis Applied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at Hasidisapplied.com slash donate.